Thirty years ago, Chuck Colson wrote the following in Against the Night, Living in the New Dark Ages. And it's even more true today. We live in a new dark age. Having elevated the individual as the measure of all things, modern men and women are guided solely by their own dark passions. They have nothing above themselves to respect or obey, no principles to live or die for. Personal advancement, personal feeling, and personal autonomy are the only shrines at which they worship. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John identified those dark passions that guide our society today. He referred to them as the lusts of the world and made it clear that it's impossible to be driven by the lusts of the world and the love of God at the same time. Picking up our study in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does John mean when he warns, do not love the world? Obviously, he doesn't mean we're not to love humanity, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. What John is talking about is letting a godless world with its false values, false standards, and false gods swallow us up. And the way the world swallows us up is by gaining our affection and leading us to believe that we must get all we can out of this life because we really don't know about tomorrow. It's perhaps best expressed by the phrase, you only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can. If we swallow that kind of thinking, our life becomes absorbed by the world, and the kingdom of God gets crowded out. Things become more important to us than anything else. John understands this. So he doesn't simply leave us with a general admonition not to love the world, but wisely adds, nor the things in the world. You know, we could deny the fact that we love the world, maybe even kid ourselves into believing that we don't, if John didn't make us examine our love for the things of the world. Because it's hard to evaluate our love for the world as a whole. But if we break it down into things... We can examine our affection for things, and we can judge our love for the world by our love for the things of the world. So what are these things of the world, and how can we tell if we love them or not? 
But wisely, John didn't attempt to catalog the things of the world for us. They didn't have iPhones, Xboxes, and Harleys in John's day. And it would have been foolish to admonish us not to love our donkey or our team of oxen. But through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, John was able to categorize the things of the world into three classifications. And he did so by giving names to the three passions of darkness the various things feed if they are allowed to capture our affections. Those classifications are found in verse 16 again. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's briefly examine those lusts this morning and honestly see if we are in danger of them becoming stronger than our love for God. We begin with the lust of the flesh. What does he mean by the lust of the flesh? Is he saying that our natural desires are not of God? That bodily appetites are wrong? Surely not. In and of themselves, they are wholesome and essential to life. And the pleasure that accompanies their legitimate satisfaction is God-given. The key here is legitimate satisfaction. If God isn't primary in our life, guiding and controlling our response to the natural desires we have, the desires begin to control us, and they become lust. They become passions of darkness that dominate and ruin our lives. You know, God made our bodies in such a way that they hunger for food in order to maintain life. But if our flesh takes control, we become gluttons who live only to eat and drink. God designed us to need regular periods of rest. But if we go to bed every time we're tired and stay in bed when we don't feel like getting up, we become sluggards. God gave us sex, which produces not only children, but also the most enjoyable pleasure a couple can experience. But if we express our sexual urges without restraint and outside the bonds of holy matrimony, we reduce ourselves to living like instinctual and often perverted animals. That is the lust of the flesh. Next, John speaks of the lust of the eyes. You know, John's first category had to do with temptations from within. This one has to do with things from without. It's the lust for things that are seen. It's the spirit that can see nothing without wishing to acquire it. The spirit that believes happiness can be found in the things money can buy, which the eye can see. It's covetousness, wanting what others have. It's a life characterized by constantly striving to gain more stuff. It's pure and simple greed, which really isn't pure nor simple. And how the world wants to sell us things that look nice. And how hard it works to convince us that if we don't have them, we're really missing out on the good life. 
If our life is dominated by the desire to possess things, we've succumbed to the lust of the eyes. And the world has conformed us to its way of thinking instead of us converting the world. And then we have the boastful pride of life. Now, what is this? Basically, it's the desire to awaken envy in other people. The first two categories had to do with satisfying ourselves beyond that which God intended. They were directed toward us and only indirectly involved others. The pride of life, however, cannot exist except as it relates to others. It seeks to create a sense of envy, rivalry, and burning jealousy in the hearts of others. And it gives us pleasure in doing so to them. It's a desire to outshine or outrank someone else, and it goes beyond healthy competition. It's the spirit that needs to impress others by always outdoing them. A bigger house, a better job, a faster car, smarter kids. That is the boastful pride of life. And it can become a dark passion driving us through life and over others, things. How easy it is to fall into the trap of loving the things of the world. Now, God did not say we must avoid things, that we shouldn't have anything, nor did he say we should only have the bare necessities of life. The Apostle Paul said he had learned to be content with whatever he had, getting along with humble means or living in prosperity. But admittedly, that's not easy. In fact, a verse that is often quoted in the context of athletic events follows what he has to say about doing so. Perhaps we ought to look at the entire passage. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It wasn't easy, even for Paul. But he had learned the secret of contentment, no matter his circumstances. And quite frankly, living in prosperity can sometimes be harder to do in a way that pleases God than living in need. Sometimes the more we have, the harder it is to take our eyes off the things we have. But it's really not the volume or the value of the things we have that causes the problem. The problem is one of the heart. We're not to love our things more than we love God. Things must not take first place in our life. But how do we tell what has first place in our heart? Well, I think Jesus gave us the answer when he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, it might do us good to examine the passage. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus isn't saying we must not have possessions during our time on earth, only that they are temporal. They will not last. And the only things that will last are the things we lay up in heaven. So obviously we should treasure that which is eternal more than that which is temporal. But how do we know which we treasure more? It may sound slightly convoluted, but the best way to see what we treasure more is to find out where we put our treasure. And you can see that by simply looking in your checkbook, if you even use one anymore. <laughs> if you don't, just look at your spreadsheet or whatever you use to track your income and expenditures and find out what percentage of your income goes where. We should probably begin by simply checking the percentages of what go where regarding the things of earth. What percentage of your income is invested in meeting the basic needs of your family? And what percentage could be put under the headings of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life? That in and of itself may be a wake-up call that should be heeded. And then, take an honest look at how you are doing regarding the things of heaven. What percentage of your income goes to God? A tithe, 10%, was required of God's people in the Old Testament, but it wasn't commanded of us in the New Testament. However, the prophet Malachi does make it clear that we are robbing God if we don't tithe. Now, I almost hate to bring this up because I just said last week in Sunday school that I seldom mention money anymore because I don't have to. And it certainly doesn't look like many in our church are robbing God. You know, while many churches are struggling to meet expenses, the giving in our church has enabled us to do more and give more to missions than we envisioned when making our financial projection last year. So it's obvious that many in our church do tithe, and many go beyond a tithe. But for the sake of those who haven't yet come to understand the importance and the blessing of tithing, Let's go ahead and look again at Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. 
I doubt that anyone would intentionally try to rob God. But you may not have realized you were doing so. And who wouldn't want God to open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows? So if you think you may be robbing God, recheck your percentages. Find out what percentage of your income goes to the church. And if you're not giving at least 10%, you may want to up the percentage. Now, a tithe, which is 10% of your income, is admittedly a lot of money. And calculating a tithe may create a little sticker shock if you've never done it. But tithing is God's way of supporting the church and kingdom work. And it's a very practical way to examine the condition of your heart. You know, it's one thing to say we don't love the world and things of the world. It's another to show our love for the things of God by giving up the things of the world that we could buy with 10% of our income. Now, obviously, churches do need money to do God's work in the world. But we have never resorted to financial programs and incentives to get our people to give. Without realizing what they are doing, I'm afraid some churches do get funds by appealing to the lust of the flesh, <laughs> offering a pie or a cake if you'll make a donation, or the lust of the eyes, offering some kind of physical enticement or guaranteeing a return on investment in their ministry, or the boastful pride of life, getting people excited about giving by always building something that's going to make their church the most prominent church in the area. Just this morning I was reading the State Journal Register on, online and a big article popped up. Parking blessings. Church parking near stadiums, a win-win for congregations and game-goers. There's an article that talked about uh, how churches that are located near venues of sporting events are making thousands of dollars by opening up their parking lots and selling parking spaces to those who come to, to a game or to whatever. And I found this an interesting statement. It says, in the past... Clergy might have preferred the old-fashioned way of getting churchgoers to donate while shunning the sports fan parking business as too worldly. There's just much more openness to different kinds of non-religious tactics to perform the necessary functions of a church or synagogue or mosque. <laughs> We don't want, we don't believe that God wants us to do that. You know, I, I don't think he wants us charging when we invite people or make it known that people can come watch the 4th of July in our parking lot. 
Now, in the past, we've actually given them root beer floats and made them feel welcome. I mean, we could have put somebody out there and said, it'll cost you a dollar. But we don't. We don't believe that that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us confusing our love for him with lust for the world. Let's keep the distinction clear. Let's simply give God what he's asked for. And if we're able, let's give him a love offering above and beyond what he has required. You know, we love to sing, I surrender all. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking we've surrendered our all if we won't even tithe. If we're not willing to give 10% of our worldly goods for the kingdom of God, we obviously haven't surrendered our all to him. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Be honest with yourself and with God. And express your love for him in a way that proves you are not in love with the things of the world.